Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Neil, for the opportunity this morning to share these things. And just wanted to throw out a shameless plug for Holly's song. For any of you that, that enjoyed it and were touched by it, just wanted to say that she wrote that herself. And so... It touched you. Feel free to let her know afterwards. Well, as we get started this morning, what we're going to be talking about is the Old Testament and specifically how we can apply it to our lives today. And this is a subject that I think a lot of people struggle with and a lot of people get wrong. So I'm hoping to kind of point us down the right path. So as we get started, will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning, for the chance we have to study your word. We thank you for everyone that you've brought here together. We pray that as we hear these words this morning, that we know that through your word we can get to know you better, and that that is another form of worship, and that we, as we take these truths and we apply them to our lives, that is what you want us to do. And so we pray that you would Give us attentive hearts this morning and help us to focus on these truths from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we get started here, I just want to pose a couple of questions. First of all, what are we to do with the Old Testament? How does it apply to our lives today? When we look at the Old Testament, a lot of times I know it can seem like we've got a series of kind of archaic, difficult-to-apply passages that can seem like they were written to a different people a long time ago that have little to do with our lives today. So to help us get started on this concept, I thought I'd share a story that comes from personal experience. When I was attending Texas A&M University, I was down there for three years, and my sophomore year, I had an apartment that I shared with three other Christian guys, and sometimes we would go to church together. And these were always interesting trips because we were from four different church backgrounds. And so being in Texas, I didn't have a car, but my three roommates had these Chevy full-size pickups. So we would pile in the cab of one of their trucks. It was always crowded. We'd go to church, and we would go to a Southern Baptist church. And it was interesting to see how sometimes the pastor would give a sermon, and the four of us discussing it afterwards would kind of have different things that we would pull out of it. And so my my illustration is this. You've got four guys, just like in my situation, who were who are college students and from four different church backgrounds and used to looking at the Bible a little bit differently. They go to their church next door, such and such Christian church, and the pastor is giving a sermon and he's talking about taking care of the poor and he's building this whole sermon and toward the end he he comes to a passage that he inserts in there to help him make his point. He's really not sure what to do with it. And the passage is Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. And as he gets to the passage, he goes over it, but he doesn't really know quite how to teach it, so he just kind of glosses over it. And so let me read it real quick. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive trees 
from, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. And on the surface, we can look at this, and it just kind of seems, you know, it's part of that, you read through Deuteronomy, you read through some of the Old Testament, and you're kind of shaking your head. I know it's in the Bible for a reason, but what do I do with it? And I think we all face this. So what, when, the, when these roommates get out of the message, they get back in their car or truck, and one of the roommates says to the other three, what do you make of this passage in Deuteronomy that the pastor inserted there at the end of the sermon? And the first guy, have, you have four different approaches. These guys are from four different church backgrounds. The first guy says, well, you know, I, I don't really know why he inserted it, because in my Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament, the pages are crisp as the day I bought the Bible. I've never opened them. And... You know, but, but, you know, I use the New Testament, so I've got the pages turned all the time in my New Testament, especially the red letter portions, that's my Bible. And that's one approach that people take to the Old Testament, is just to ignore it. Because they don't understand it, so they ignore it. And the second guy says, well, you know, I, when I'm reading from Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it just gets kind of dull, and I don't know what to do with it, so I kind of try and extract some things that I can use, but... For most of the part, I, I try and take the things I'm going to use and apply from Genesis, you know, where some good stories from Psalms. You know, Psalms are really readily available to understanding the prophets, Isaiah, I like reading. So I kind of just pick and choose whatever I can make application with. So that's the second guy's approach. Now, the third guy says, well, when he used Deuteronomy 24, he he was covering a passage in which it was basically civil commands. Now, for me, I take the moral commands of the Old Testament law, and those are what I think carry through to today. Those are what I take to apply, but civil, such as this passage, or ceremonial, I pretty much just ignore because those aren't applicable today. Now, the guy asking the question says, well, guys, I think there might be a different way of looking at it. We can look at the Old Testament as a tool that we can use to teach us and to learn from. And they kind of, well, that's, that's an interesting idea. So here we've seen four different approaches, and I want to examine them. The first and second, I think, don't hold a whole lot of water because, I mean, it's really not something we're supposed to do to ignore the Old Testament, nor are we just sort of pick and choose at will. But a lot of people hold to the third idea of what I call slicing and dicing the Old Testament. They take it and divide it up into uh, moral, civil, ceremonial. And this is really common in uh, Reformed theology. If any of you guys are from a Reformed background or have friends that are uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, this is really common. And what this, what this does is, like I said, they'll either take most commonly the moral commands as applying to us today and ignore the civil and ceremonial, which I've, I've created a little pie chart here to try and help us. Okay, so here you've got the ceremonial and the civil and the moral. And what they'll do is, even within one passage, it can be one section, one verse, even within one verse, they can take and, okay, well, this word is moral, this word is civil, this word is ceremonial, and they just chop it all up. 
So, um, there are, but there are a group of people out there that you might be familiar with um, that take the, both the, the moral here as well as the civil as applying today. And that means that um, you know, all the commands of the law and you know, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, when you read those books, those are to be tried to apply to our lives today. They're called Christian Reconstructionists, um, also known as Dominion Theology or Theonomy. You may have heard of them, maybe not. But they're people that you actually might have uh, encountered on a day-to-day basis. People, uh, Pat Robertson is one that comes to mind, where maybe you've watched his program, The 700 Club, and you're kind of not really sure what he's doing with his um, use of the Old Testament. Well, he'd be one person that would subscribe to that method. So I want to just take a quick minute to analyze this approach. The history of it is it goes back to the Westminster Confession back in 1646. And there may be people that have, uh, theologians that talked about this before that time, but that's really when it got put on paper. And so what you've got is the three divisions formally set down. And people to this day from the covenant reform tradition generally do not like to argue with this approach, and you can actually get them quite upset if you try to. <laughs> um, because what, unfortunately what happened is the Westminster Confession is a good document, and it's been very useful to us through the years, but it was, ri- it was written by men, and you know you, they unfortunately put it on a, uh, an equal plane with the Bible, which is God's word, and instead of reading the Westminster Confession in, in the light of Scripture, they will oftentimes hold them up equally and try and constantly compare both as if they were equal, which is not a good idea. So I want us to, that's the third approach, and it, it does something good in that it attempts to use the whole Bible, the Old Testament, and find application to us today. But I think there's a better approach and that is, let's see if we've, well, okay, yeah, we can cover that. I think my, my notes may have gotten a little messed up, or else I did. Um, the, the, there's some problems that I just want to cover real quick with dividing up the Old Testament. The, the three divisions are not found in the Bible. Always, when you read the, the scripture, the law is treated as a cohesive, cohesive unit. It's the law this, the law that, the law that. It's not, you know, you don't read Paul talking about, well, this moral law or this ceremonial law. It's, it's always treated as a whole, so the divisions are man-made. Also, the law of Moses was given to a specific people, Israel, corresponding to a specific place, God's promised land, at a specific time in history. So unless we meet these three qualifications, it's going to be difficult for us to envision ourselves as being under the law. Now, The New Testament also makes it clear that we're not under the law, but we're now under grace. So in light of that, I think there's a better way, the the fourth way that I brought out in the illustration to, to look at the Old Testament and how to apply it. And I've called it principalization, which is basically a term I borrowed from one of my Bible college professors. And it's, it's taking the principles, looking at the principles in the Old Testament, alongside the precepts. So I was going to cover this real quick. Precepts are God's specific instructions, commands, prohibitions, where, you know, we, that's what we read. When we read the Old Testament, we, we read the law, we, there's all these very specific regulations about what people were to do, what people were not to do. Now, and there's also principles. 
And these are God's timeless truth undergirding every passage of Scripture. And so even in the Old Testament, these are going on, whether we see them on the surface or not. So taking this method in mind, I want to give a, this is kind of a, sort of a definition. It says, every biblical passage teaches God's eternal truth. The issue is not whether some passages are still relevant while others are not. All are relevant. Rather, the issue is whether principle and precept are are to be applied today or only the principle. And what I'm going to argue throughout this uh, message here is that the when it comes to the Old Testament, we're not under the law, so the, the precepts are no longer binding on us, but the principles are. And so that's what we really need to be focusing in on. And um, this, this method, just to cover it, it's, it's also known, if you ever read theological journals, as principalism. There's some other people out there that call it that. It's, it, but it's, it's just a fancy term for taking a look at the principles of Scripture. So now let's look at how the Old Testament was applied by Jesus Christ. Because I think this is going to be really helpful to us. And when, when, we, when we want to know how we should properly use the Old Testament, it's a really good idea to look at how Jesus used the Old Testament and how the New Testament authors used the Old Testament to find out how we should apply it to our lives. So first let's look at Matthew 12, 1 through 14. And it's up here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to turn to it as well. Kind of a long passage. And I'm going to start reading here. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus, he was always in trouble on the Sabbath. These Pharisees were not happy campers. And so he's with his disciples. They're walking through a grain field. They get hungry. They start picking these heads of grain, popping them in their mouth. They're basically having a snack. And at first when I read this, I was kind of wondering, well, if that's somebody else's grain field, are they actually stealing? And interestingly enough, I came across another passage as I was going through this last night, and it's Deuteronomy 23, 24 through 25, which says, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not in, put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So the disciples were well within the law here. I mean, they were following it to the T. I mean, they, they weren't even going outside of what was right here for them to do. And you notice what it's telling them, these are Old Testament Israelites, was that they could walk through a vineyard or a grain field and take a few, you know, have a few grapes for a snack, that's fine. But don't go out there with a bucket, you know, start filling your bucket. I mean, that's, that's harvesting the grapes. Or don't go out there with a sickle and start chopping down the grain. I mean, that's, that's doing work. And so even on the Sabbath, these disciples of Jesus were not doing work. They were just having a snack. They were hungry. They'd probably been walking a long ways, and so they were having a snack. And yet they get accused by the Pharisees back in Matthew 12 of violating the Sabbath. Now, this, the Pharisees were notorious for taking the law and running with it. They got into all kinds of uh, legalism. And so it's kind of interesting to me when when we read this to to see how Jesus 
deals with uh, how he deals with the, the Pharisees. Now he doesn't uh, correct them. He doesn't say, "No, you're wrong. That's not what the law says." He just kind of lets that one slide, and then uh, let's look at how he let's look at how he deals with them. Um, but he said, "Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him." How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So we'll keep going with this in a minute. Um, but basically, he he counteracts their charge with pointing them to another Old Testament example of how David... Uh, you know, his men were also hungry, just like Jesus' disciples were hungry, and ate on the Sabbath. And there, there are some sticky issues here. So I think next we, we need to look at, uh, I think it's slide number 13, which, yes, there we go. It's First Samuel. This is what Jesus was referring to. First Samuel 21, 2 through 6. And David is fleeing from King Saul. That's the background here. And his men are really hungry. And they happen to come to the priest. And this is what David says. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women... Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was sanctified in the vessel this day. So the, so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now, what's going on here is that this happens to be the Sabbath, that David and his men are fleeing from Saul and they're hungry and they come to the priest. The priest doesn't have any wonder bread on hand, so he, he says, well, all I've got is the uh, temple bread that would be put on the, uh, on the table there. And so what's, what's interesting here is that... Um, Jesus was using this example of David to teach that there was an important principle that the Pharisees were missing. It was okay, for instance, the disciples were eating on the Sabbath. There was no prohibition in the law against eating. And, you know, they, they weren't to work on the Sabbath. You remember the manna when the Israelites were in the desert? They couldn't gather the manna on the Sabbath, but they could eat it on the Sabbath. So he points to this example of David and what was happening with his men were that there was extreme hunger, and that was basically an extenuating circumstance, um, which, you know, there was different regulations on the, the bread. It was only to be changed out by the priest, and it was only to be eaten by the priests. And, you know, so there were these, these kind of guidelines in, in place, but what we see is the priest being willing to set them aside because of the extenuating circumstance of extreme hunger. And so just like like that, Jesus is able to get the Pharisees to see that they're missing something. And 
one thing I wanted to note is Jesus says elsewhere, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to help man, to, to give people what, we, what would be for us a weekend, to give them a day of rest every six days of work, one day off. It was They didn't have to work. It was their day of rest and of worshiping God. And it was, it was meant to help and not to be a burden. So if, if the Sabbath, for instance, in this case, the, the, with the showbread and the priest was, you know, that, it was causing them a hardship. Here their stomachs are, you know, maybe giving them an ulcer because they're so hungry and, and all that's there for them to eat is the, the temple bread. So that what we see the priest doing is saying, you know, there's a little bit of extenuating circumstances where this can be set aside and the principle is um, the principle is what's more important, and that's that mercy could overrule a ceremonial ritual. And we're going to see that Jesus get to that specifically in a minute as well. And just to touch on the Sabbath a little bit more, first of all, we know it's the Sabbath because when we, you know, people, there is some question, well, is this example of David on the Sabbath? Yes, it was, because assuming the priest was following the law, Leviticus 24, 5 through 9 says that the bread was to be changed every Sabbath. Every um, Sabbath the bread was to be changed out. So it's we can surmise that the, the priest was following that statute, and so David was there on the Sabbath. So it was a direct correlation to what was going on with Jesus and the disciples. And, um, you know, the Sabbath was never meant to make men's life miserable, which was basically what the Pharisees had turned it into, such nitpicky regulations. And they'd written whole volumes, and you can actually read them. They're out there as far as, you know, what is this? Is this rock, you know, I can lift one rock on the Sabbath, but I can't lift two rocks. And, you know, all these details, fine details about how much work people they thought should be allowed to do on the Sabbath or not. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you're completely missing the boat. So if we go back to Matthew 12, um, one, one other thing here, okay, I want to point out is, where he says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? So basically, just like pastors today who work on Sundays, the priests were to work on the Sabbath, and it was okay. They weren't violating the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath because they were aiding in the ministry for the people of Israel. And so he goes on to say, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what, what this quote here is from, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it, it comes from Hosea 6.6, 6, and you can feel free to turn there in your Bible if you'd like. But basically it just says, for I desire, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And this, these are uh, words God is speaking, and it's in the context of a, I don't know how you say it, but basically he's really coming down hard on Israel and Judah because of their wickedness. And so this comes in the midst of this, about how they were, they were doing wickedness, they were into this and that. And he says, you know what? I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And so that's what Jesus is quoting here. He's basically telling the Pharisees that they've got it all wrong. And as we keep going here, let's, 
Let's keep going in the passage in verse number 9 of Matthew 12. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And he's speaking here to the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. He, He basically goes into the hornet's den by going into the temple. And so he's not well received. And he says, Of how much more value is it is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as a whole, as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So, again, he's saying, you guys that have come up with all these nitpicky laws about the Sabbath, if you have one sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're not going to hesitate in a heartbeat to go and, and rescue it. Likewise, this man is here. I'm able to help him. I'm going to. So it, it's a continuation of this as far as the Sabbath is concerned, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So now that helps us to see how Jesus was using the Old Testament. He was able to see not only see it not only in terms of its precepts, its specific commands, but in terms of its principles. Now, let's look next at what Christ and Paul taught concerning the changing status of the law. And for this, we're going to start in Matthew 5:17, where Jesus says, he's again talking to these same folks, and he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to, but to fulfill. Now, this is key because those who want to say that we're still under portions of the law, or some of them even try and say we're under all the law, which gets into all kinds of problems, they'll they'll misuse this passage. Now, they generally don't have a a problem with the first word you see up there underlined, destroy. And that word there in Greek is katalusai, which is interesting. It it kind of is a a more destructive word than just destroy. It basically is like to demolish. And it's kind of the idea of, you know, bulldozing something. It just gets flattened. So he says, I did not come to destroy the law or demolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Now, this word is really crucial. The word is uh, is plerao in the Greek, which basically the idea of this word is if you have a glass of water and you're, you're pouring water in and the glass is filling up, plerao would be when it gets full. It's it's full, it's complete, it's fulfilled. It You can keep pouring water in, but it's not going to do you any good. And um, so that's what he was saying. I've, I've brought the law... To completion, I brought it to fruition, and so this this is really significant as we're in this gospel period, which is a transitional period between the Old Testament law and the New Testament of grace. So let's continue with this in Romans 6:14, and this says, "For you are not under law, but under grace." This is Paul writing this, and again, Paul in Galatians 3:24 through 25 says. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So I think, you know, when people try and argue that we ought to be under the law today, they're kind of missing some passages. They have to really 
do some uh, what we call in in Bible college and seminary hermeneutical gymnastics, which is really kind of warping a, a passage to make it fit what you want it to say. Because these verses are pretty clear. They speak for themselves. Now, okay, we've seen how Jesus looked at the law and he looked at principles and we've seen that there's this transition that now as New Testament believers, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So I think it's helpful at this point to look at how the New Testament authors also used the law and how they, how they applied the Old Testament. So first of all, let's go to Romans 15.4, where Paul says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so what we're seeing here is that they, the Old Testament is something from which we're to learn. And then again in 1 Corinthians 10:11, he says, Now these things happen to them. This is talking in the context about the Israelites. I believe they were in the wilderness at this point. And now all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. So we're to take, according to Paul, the Old Testament as our what we're to learn from and as our examples as New Testament Christians. And if we let's let's take a look at the next. Um, what we have is let, let's look at how Paul develops this. We start off with the Ten Commandments, which virtually every Christian. I don't think there's anybody that generally comes up with a complaint about the Ten Commandments. Everybody seems to like them. And so this is the Eighth Command. Thou shalt not steal. And so this is the foundation from which the next Old Testament passage is going to be built. And it's Deuteronomy 24, I'm sorry, 25, verse 4. It says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, on the surface, I don't own an ox. And I definitely don't have a grain mill. So how does this apply? So Paul is going to help us out here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 10. And, um, you know, for instance, um, well, we'll get to that in a second. It says, for whoever goes to war at his, whoever goes to war at his own expense, and the answer, nobody, they get paid. Who, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Well, I imagine not too many. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? These would probably be goats at this point. Most people probably would, would do that. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, it, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be the partaker of his hope. Now, here he's helping us to understand there's something going on besides just grain and oxen, that, in fact, there is a principle here that we can take and we can apply to our lives. And he's saying, you know, yes, God is concerned about the oxen, but he's also concerned about us. And this, this seemingly difficult-to-apply passage does apply to us. And he takes it a step further in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 18 where he, then we see him taking it, not only teaching it, but applying it. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Again, we see him using this. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's another Old Testament reference. And so here he's applying this to proper treatment, proper payment of elders and by extension pastors who are faithfully teaching the word and taking this uh, principle from the Old Testament of not stealing and applying it to us as New Testament believers. So um, here we see this uh, timeless principle illustrated by the Apostle Paul. Now finally, um, you may want to uh, turn back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 24 if, if you had turned there before or want to follow along. I think it would be really helpful for us to now, in light of looking at the Old Testament in terms of looking at uh, the principles it has to teach us, to go back and look at Deuteronomy 24. And if we could look at the, uh, the context, I think it would be really helpful. Now you see, our passage is going to be located, let's see if I can find it, right down in, in, uh, in this section here, toward, toward the end here. But it comes in a context of what I call, I, w- I would say, mercy. We have um, in the start of the chapter, verse 5, mercy for newlyweds. Uh, men weren't allowed to be sent out to war in the first year of marriage. Mercy for debtors. Mercy for society, which the specific command is uh, death penalty for kidnappers. Then we have mercy for society by quarantining people in time of, of leprosy outbreak. Mercy for borrowers. Mercy for poor laborers. Mercy for parents slash children. And then finally, mercy for the poor and needy, particularly for resident aliens, widows, and orphans. So when we're extracting principles from the Old Testament, our biggest, uh, most useful help that we have in, in searching out these principles is the very context they occurred in the Old Testament. And so what we see here is that, that we're looking at Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, in the context of mercy. So let's take another look at Deuteronomy 24. And, you know, we went over this briefly in the beginning, so let's look at it again. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Okay, so who are the alien, the fatherless, and the widow? The alien would be a resident alien, a a Gentile, a Canaanite or Egyptian or other, who was willingly living in the land of Israel and who had willingly submitted himself to God's law and was willing to worship God. Now, the the fatherless would be, uh, the Bible defines orphans a little bit differently than we do, where for us it's someone who's lost both of their parents. In the Bible times, an orphan was someone who was without a father and the widow. Now, what's interesting to note is that these three groups of people were the poor in their society. These were people who were um, an alien, would not have been very socially acceptable in Israel. He couldn't, uh, he or she couldn't go in and, and worship in the temple like everyone else. Um, they, they were kind of, I guess, a little bit similar to in this country we have resident Mexicans. And um, I'm not making light of that. It's just that they're people who are here, and uh, you know, there's a kind of a controversy about them being legal versus illegal, all that. I'm not going to get there, but um, I don't want to get into that. But just to highlight the fact that they're usually 
um, like day laborers are usually to, uh, kind of more poor people among our country. And um, now the fatherless in this time would be people who, you know, your, your father, and this is um, true of a lot of societies around the world, a father is your income earner. So for a child to grow up without a father, and, and for instance, my grandmother did, she uh, told me about during the depress- Depression, she would be shining people's shoes, doing whatever she could because she was living with a, a mom and siblings who didn't have a, an income earner. And now the widow would also be in the same boat. They would not have a husband to provide for them. So these are the poorest, the most needy, the most helpless members of the Israelite society. So here we see in the context of mercy how this passage is teaching us that God is taking care. This is the procedure God has set forth to take care of these people. And what we have is, um, it says... It starts off with the um, the fields, harvesting, grain. Now, grain would be what they would make their, their bread out of. It would be what they would they'd do, the staple of their diet. So when they're harvesting grain, then we go to olives. Now, the olives would be the oil, which they would um, run their lamps with, they would cook with. It was another staple of their of their survival. And then finally, we have the grapes, the grapes uh, being used to make a, like a wine, which would be the, usually the beverage they would drink with their meal. So, so basically, in order for basic existence, these three things are the things that the poorest among them needed to survive. So it says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it. When you beat the olives from your olive trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains. When you harvest your grapes in the vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains. And the people they were to leave, all three of these four, were the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Now, we also read in a parallel passage in Leviticus 19 that they were also to leave the four corners of their field untouched. And so the principle has come to be called gleaning. And what would happen was that after a, a farmer had, had harvested his crops, there were these um, you know, ones he had missed throughout the, the field as well as the corners that he had left untouched. And then the poorest members of society could come in and they could pick for themselves whatever they could get, which probably wouldn't be a whole lot, but it would be enough to get by on. And they could take these for free. So this is basically charity. This is God's way of providing for the poorest among them. And notice at the end, he gives the reason for this command. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, that on the surface seems, okay, yeah, I know they're slaves in Egypt, but what does it have to do with this passage? Well, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they were the poor. They were the oppressed, and they were at the mercy of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians showed them no mercy. And so they were basically helpless, completely and utterly helpless, save for the miraculous deliverance at the hands of God, which we all know that he did. But he wants them to not forget about that time in their, in their history, which wasn't too long ago at this point. He wants them to remember that they are to uh, remember what it was like to be in that, in that situation and to not be greedy. You know, when they've got, a li- they can spare a little bit of extra in their field, not harvest every single olive, every single grape, every single head of grain, but just leave a little. That was how the poor among them were to be taken care of. And what this principle has to teach us, I think, is really interesting as far as how we can apply this today. 
because first of all, what comes to mind is is in my job at work. I work closely with Costco, and you know, because some of us we might think, well, I don't have a field, I don't have grain, etc. And all these warehouses, there's 50 some odd of them in the LA area. They will come to me and say, you know, I have this uh, turkey burger box that went bad. Can you give me credit for it? And that's legitimate. It's usually the manufacturer takes charge and they'll issue a credit that goes through me. And unfortunately, sometimes what happens is warehouse managers and people in the, in the warehouses get really kind of greedy and they, they don't want any losses. And so even if the product spoils by going out of code date, which then the manufacturer is not responsible for, they don't have to give credit for that, they'll come to me and they'll lie. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, the, the code date was such and such. They'll, they'll make the code date not what it really was. And so basically implying that the product went bad while still within code date, and I'm none the wiser, so I have to give credit. Basically what they're doing is being dishonest, being greedy, and trying to, to hang on to every, you know, pinch every penny and get every little thing they can. And that's, that's the wrong approach. Now let me tell you about the right approach. When a warehouse has extra product that, let's say it sits too long, it's still okay, it's, you know, it's canned goods, it, it, it don't ever go bad. I read about one the other day that they opened up after 100 years and it was still good. <laughs> so they got canned goods extra left over. Now what they can do is, let's say it gets dented, they can come to me and say, yeah, we know we want credit for this, we think the manufacturer is responsible for X, Y, and Z, it'll make up some reason. Instead of doing that, just count it as a loss, it's you know, one case, it's not going to kill you, and then set it in a, in a pile aside for charity. And you know, when I worked in, in retail, I would go to the grocery stores really early in the mornings. And the, uh, like, this was in the Portland area, so it would be Northwest Harvest, and some of the other charities would come around with these flat-sided panel trucks early in the mornings to all the grocery stores in the area and ask, do you have anything that is dented cans, anything that you can't use, we'll take them off your hands and we'll give them to people in need. And they would do that. A lot of these grocery store managers were really kind people, and they would really hook up these charities. So this is a modern-day example of this passage in action. And one other thing I wanted to highlight about this passage in Deuteronomy 24 is that when it came to taking care of the poor in Israel, this is just something that we should keep in mind, what we don't see is the people, let's say, harvesting from their own fields and then going in and, you know, holding a gun to the head of their neighbor and, you know, give me some extra from your field and we're all going to go and we're all just going to pour all these extras on the poor and we're really going to take care of them. What they did, the poor among them had to actually do some work for themselves. They had to get into the field. They had to take a basket. They had to do some work. And then what they got was completely free for them to keep. So it's just kind of an interesting lesson on, on how to properly take care of the poor as a society, because Israel, remember, was a, was a nation. And as a societal level, freebies are, gen, are generally not the best policy to just see how much you can keep giving and keep giving and keep giving without you know, any kind of strings attached. Generally, it's, it's the best policy, as God has laid out here, was best for Israel, is going to be true for, for all societies to create a program where people have to take initiative in order to um, get taken care of. And so when we, when we look at this, um, if we could look at 2 Timothy 3.16... 
And in this passage, it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And what I want to highlight here is this is a verse that's teaching us to use all of scripture for our teaching, for our learning, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this is what we've been getting after today. And one I wanted to highlight here, the word in Greek for inspired by God is the word theanustos, which literally means God breathed. And so, you know, all of scripture, when it was given by God to the various apostles and prophets who penned the scriptures, all of it comes from God. All of it is important for our learning it's important for our instruction. It's important for us to take the principles from and to apply them to our lives. And on that note, just a little graph to illustrate that, a little illustration here. Um, what you see in the, in the illustration is all of Scripture, and you see it broken down into Old and New Testaments. And what I want to highlight is this line down here, which is, I've called it God's eternal truth. And... What we see is that through, through all of the different times, the law, the prophets, and the psalms generally is how, how Jesus would uh, refer to the Old Testament, as well as I've said here, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation in the New Testament, just to kind of give us a correlation. All of these things are not to be ignored. They're all inspired by God. They're all for our learning. And even in the New Testament, we need to properly understand principles, even though they were written to fellow New Testament Christians like us, um, there are some things that we need to, um, we, we definitely need to look at the principles. But, you know, one thing that I've, that I've tried to highlight here is, is looking, at, looking for principles in terms of context. Well, there is one other aspect to principalization that people might bring up, and that is what about cultural issues? What about cultural context? Well, that is that is an issue, but I think it's a little bit more straightforward. For instance, if we read in Romans 16, verse 16, where it says, greet one another with a holy kiss, that's really not appropriate to our culture. I mean, if you go to the Middle East today, you'll see people doing that. But here in America, we tend to give a warm handshake or a nice hug, but um, the, 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 the expression of the principle is different. The principle is for believers to warmly greet one another, but the application may have to be a little bit different across cultures. But I think these things are, are fairly easy to recognize, and so I don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But finally, I just want to note that, um, kind of just to sum this all up, recognizing, understanding, and applying the timeless principles of God's word, in addition to its precepts, equals understanding the mind of God. If we are to know God's will on a given subject, we'll have to utilize the Old Testament. And so it's through looking at all of Scripture, and you know, when we get into this level of the God's eternal truth, the principles that are from which all of Scripture is built upon, what we're really looking at is the mind of God. And that's where we need to be zeroing in, not to discount the precepts. Those are important for our teaching, but to make sure that we don't overlook the principles. And so when we, come, when we try to apply the Old Testament to our lives, to interpret it properly and apply it, make sure we look in the context. Make sure we are looking for principles that are things that we can take and apply to our lives.
And that's, that's basically what I've got. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these truths that you've taught us through your word.